Welcome back, everyone. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stukowiak. This is episode 167. And on today's show, we're talking to Toby Knaup, the CTO of Mesosphere. Toby was the tech lead at Airbnb and ultimately left back in 2013 to start Mesosphere, a company that is building a data center operating system for the next generation of internet scale applications. We talked about Mesosphere, Mesosphere DCOS, and all the open source around it, Apache Mesos, Docker, containerization, Linux, uh, Kubernetes, CoreOS, all the in-betweens, Kronos. Great show today with Toby. We have three awesome sponsors for this show, CodeShip, TopTal, and DigitalOcean. Our first sponsor is CodeShip. They've launched a brand new feature called Organizations, and now you can create teams, set permissions for specific team members, and improve collaboration in your continuous delivery workflows. Maintain centralized control over your organization's projects and teams with CodeShip's new Organizations plans. You can save 20% off any plan you choose for three months by using this code, the Changelog Podcast. Again, that code is the Changelog Podcast, and you'll save 20% off any premium plan for three months by using that code. Head to codeship.com slash the changelog to get started. And now on to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. And this is actually take number two with Toby Knalp. He is the CTO of Mesosphere. Uh, often Mesosphere and Mesos and Apache Mesos, these are all sort of like mixed and intertwined. So hopefully during the show, we'll talk to Toby a bit about all of that and get it settled out. But Toby, this is this is take two, man. What do you think? Well, let's 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 try this again. Let's hope we have we have better luck this time. So just to. Jared's also on the call too, but just to explain uh, what happened here, we had a little glitch and we had to reschedule and today's that rescheduled day and Toby's back. So if we didn't tell you, you wouldn't know. So I I let the cat out of the bag. It's a nice object lesson though, because uh, as I said last week when we had our glitch is that if Toby had had a recording machine, a data, data center operating system, if he had, if his recording machine was spread out across a cluster of thousands, that little hardware failure would have been no big deal, right? No big deal at all. Yeah, it's all about high availability. High availability. Well, let's um, let's go back in the past a bit. So maybe let's set the tone for what the call is about. So obviously, you're the CTO at Mesosphere. You got a lot of cool stuff you're doing there. A lot of it operating around open source. A lot of stuff out there that's really uh, picked up in the last year. That's just got all sorts of things happening. Uh, but you were also the tech lead at Airbnb. You've done lots of cool stuff in your past. So let's get to know you a bit and learn a bit about what your past is and kind of who you are. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I'm Toby. I, I grew up in, in beautiful Bavaria in Germany and, um, moved to Silicon Valley, um, about six years ago. And, um, you know, I went, I went to school in Germany, did some, some work in, uh, you know, machine learning and sentiment analysis. And then, um, you know, when you grow up in Germany and you work in tech, um, you always have these like, these ideas, these romantic ideas about what Silicon Valley is like. And, you know, and it's it, everybody lives in the future there and stuff. And so I always, you know, wanted to wanted to check it out. And so, uh, you know, did an internship at a, at a small startup in Silicon Valley, um, you know, a couple of years ago. And then, um, you know, through a friend actually um, got connected to the Airbnb founders a little later. 
And uh, so I joined those guys um, pretty early on. I was uh, engineer four at Airbnb. And um, so, yeah, you know, when you join that early, you wear many hats. So it did a lot of different things. I, I helped them scale their infrastructure, um, you know, helped hire a lot of the engineering team, um, built some of the backend services there, like search and, um, and the fraud detection service, uh, built some features in the product too. Um, so lots and lots of different things. And, um, you know, Couple, a couple years into Airbnb, um, brought uh, my best friend on board, Flo, uh, who's uh, a co-founder of Mesosphere 2. Um, so brought it, him into Airbnb um, to build out the data infrastructure team. And um, so there, you know, we worked uh, with Apache Mesos, uh, which, you know, ultimately uh, was the reason for starting Mesosphere because we, uh, you know, we were pretty successful with Mesos at Airbnb. Flo had used it at, uh, at Twitter before as well. And so, uh, you know, that, that led us to, to start the company. So maybe since you mentioned Apache Mesos, I mentioned it as well, and Mesosphere, can we knock down some hurdles in terms of terms and terminology? Apache Mesos, Mesosphere, Mesos DCOS. Totally. Um, let, let's, let's, op, let's help us out and explain to the audience the differences between all these names. Totally, yeah. So, let's, um, so the first thing that was out there was, was Mesos. Um, it was actually called Nexus before it was called Mesos, but uh, there was another product called Nexus, so they, they changed the name. So um, it was um, it started as a project at UC Berkeley at the AMP Lab, uh, and in fact uh, Ben Hindman, who's the third founder of Mesosphere, um, you know, was one of the co-creators of the project. Um, so it started there. Uh, the idea was to build um, a cluster management system. So sort of this layer that manages all the machines in a, in a data center in a large cluster and that provides APIs for building um, large-scale systems on top and making that process really easy. Um, it, um, it became an Apache project a little later, so it was called Apache Mesos then. Um, and, uh, you know, Twitter was one of the largest backers initially. Uh, so that's Apache Mesos. Um, you know, been an Apache, top-level Apache project uh, for a couple of years now. Um, Mesosphere is the company that uh, Flo and Ben and I created um, to commercialize Apache Mesos and to build a product around it. Um, you know, the way to think about Apache Mesos or, or the way we like to think about it is um, it's kind of like the Linux kernel. So it's a fairly, it sits fairly low in the stack. Um, it does a lot of cool stuff. It's very, um, you know, very sophisticated piece of technology. Um, it's uh, it's very high performance. A lot of really smart people working on it. Um, but if you look at the Linux kernel, you know the Linux kernel is not Linux, right? There's a lot of things around the kernel that you need to uh, to run your applications and um, you know to make the whole thing useful. So that's basically what uh, what DCOS is, uh, the data center operating system, uh, which is the main product that we're building at Mesosphere. So it has Apache Mesos at its core. Um, but it has all the pieces around it too that that make it you know a full operating system experience. So we got lots of different names there: Mesosphere, Apache Mesos, the kernel itself, basically. Um, let's go back to Airbnb, where I don't want to derail us too far off the conversation there, but I did want to set some tone in terms of the the terms and things like that. And people just sort of stumble over like, and part of this conversation is to, to demystify a bit of what's happening in the cloud. Um, and so hopefully you can help us do that, but take us back to, to when you guys were originally starting, uh, Mesosphere, what, what, uh, inspirations were happening, what was happening at Airbnb in terms of the technology that made you guys eventually leave and start this, uh, this new company. 
Yeah, so it was really our experiences from both Airbnb and Twitter that, that led to it because we, um, you know, Ben and Flo at Twitter and then Flo and I at Airbnb, we used, the, used Mesos for completely different use cases, actually. And, um, and the environment was completely different too. You know, Twitter runs their own data centers. Uh, Airbnb is entirely on, on Amazon Web Services, so cloud and on-premise. Um, and Twitter was, was running, um, you know, they're running pretty much all of their production services on, on top of Mesos. So, you know, it's things like search and the ad server and a lot of user-facing kind of request response type things. And uh, at Airbnb, we were running big data stuff. So we ran Hadoop on top of it, Cassandra, Spark, um, so big data analytics. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was kind of where the idea for uh, calling it a data center operating system came from. Because uh, we looked at this and we're like, you know, this can really run all the workloads you can run in a data center, the whole range of applications, kind of the same way that, you know, your desktop operating system is general purpose. You know, there's not one operating system that's great for doing development. And then there's another one that's great for doing graphic design and a third one for doing like Word and Excel. Uh, you know, operating systems are, are mostly general purpose. Um, so that's kind of what drove this. Um, and, you know, pre-Mesos um, at, at those two companies, um, there were really a, a bunch of big challenges that we were able to solve with Mesos. Um, one thing that was uh, that both Airbnb and Twitter uh, struggled with was kind of scaling um, scaling up and being able to, to handle the user growth. Um, so Twitter, if you if you remember the fail whale that yes, was kind of like 2009, totally. right? right? You saw that a lot and, you know, and I think there was even like is twitterdown.com and like all that stuff. It was on hacker news all the time. The whole internet got got angry and took out the pitchforks when Twitter was down. So, um, you know what happened behind the scenes is they, um, you know, they started Twitter started as a Ruby on Rails application, and um, they they had to you know millions of people showed up, um, hundreds of millions tweeted a lot. Um, the infrastructure couldn't scale with this, um, so they really needed to rethink uh, stuff. And uh, one thing they did is they, they took this monolithic Ruby on Rails application and, and broke it down into pieces uh, into like microservices, micro backend services. So, you know, there's like a different service for, um, you know, your timeline, maybe your search, your ads. Those are all different, uh, different code bases, different services. And so one thing they needed is really a platform to run all these things because that's you know, a lot of stuff to manage. Um, and, um, and that's what they used Mesos for. Um, and, uh, you know, at Airbnb, um, it was a slightly different scenario. We, we wanted to use um, Hadoop and we wanted to use it in sort of a, a self-serve way where we could start Hadoop clusters very quickly and then shut them down again. Uh, and we also wanted to be able to, to try out uh, new data analytics tools as they come out. Um, you know, data analytics stack is never just Hadoop. It's always a combination of things. And, you know, we were using Kafka also at the time. Uh, so it's just a bunch of different tools. And uh, we really wanted um, a platform to run all this stuff on to make it really easy to install these things instead of, you know, spending a month or even multiple months to, you know, trying to figure out how to install Hadoop or Kafka. Um, so that was one use case at Airbnb. The other one, um, which was pretty interesting and probably the most uh, advanced one. Um, so what we were doing at the time is we, um, we had one machine that had um, a cron tab on it and that basically ran the whole... Um, ETL and analytics pipeline. So it would do things like, um, you know, step one, dump the SQL database to a text file and then maybe merge it with the web server logs and pull some other data from a key value store and, you know, build a data set from all that and then 
Another step would be, you know, take that and count the revenue, count, you know, other things, number of visitors, uh, what have you. So there's always these multiple steps that depend on each other. And um, we were doing that at the time with uh, with Cron. So you had to be, you know, be like, okay, the first step um, should probably take like 30 minutes. So, you know, let's give it an hour and then run the next step. Um, and uh, so obviously, like if that first step would, would take longer than an hour, um, for whatever reason, then everything would fall over and you had to like manually debug things and, you know, folks weren't happy because the reports weren't there. And so it was, it was kind of a struggle. Um, and the other thing too was, um, you know, the business was growing fast. And so these jobs would, uh, would take longer to run over time. And, and this one single box that we had would just get overloaded. And so, and so what we, what we wanted to do to solve that problem is we wanted to so, uh, build a system that could dynamically scale with, um, the workload, with the ETL workload that's coming in. That's what became Kronos, which we open sourced um, at Airbnb. So you, were you a part of that then, Kronos? Yeah, so it was mostly Flow's team. Um, I contributed a little bit to it, um, but uh, Flow was running the data infrastructure team and they, they built that. Um, and we built it, so we looked at this, you know, we looked at the requirements that we had, you know, being able to scale dynamically, elastically, um, being able to populate new machines um, as needed. Um, and we were like, you know, this is a lot of, this is really hard, you know, this is a you know, those are not trivial problems. But um, but then we looked at Mesos and we're like, hey, wait a minute, you know, Mesos solves a lot of these things already. Like it has it has those things built in as primitives and we can just build on top of that and, you know, spend a lot, of le- lot less time to um, to build this thing. And, and in fact, it, it took only three months to build the whole thing. And uh, it had it had just like 3000 lines of code, I think, somewhere around there. Um, which, you know, given that it's a distributed and fault, a distributed system that is fault tolerant and can scale elastically, um, can survive machine crashes and so on. That's, that's pretty awesome. That's not a lot of code for that. So you guys got excited about Mesos and so excited that you decided to start Mesosphere, a company, um, kind of built on top of Mesos. So I'm interested a little bit in the, the social and economic kind of background with the project because you have it started at UC Berkeley. Um, all of a sudden, huge players such as Airbnb, Twitter, more recently Apple, and many others hopping in and saying, this is something that we want, that we need, and we'd like to build upon. Um, and then it became an Apache Foundation project. So maybe just kind of explain that whole milieu a little bit and the corporate interests, the open source interests, and break that down for us. Sure, yeah. So... Um, it became an Apache project um, pretty early on, basically when um, when Twitter decided to really invest uh, invest in it and um, and make it their production um, the platform for running production. Um, before that, you know, because it came out of uh, the AMP Lab in Berkeley, um, Berkeley had the rights and had the IP, and um, so Twitter, you know, because it, it be- the plan was to make it such a central piece of their stack of the infrastructure. Um, they wanted the IP be owned by the Apache Foundation um, just so they could contribute to it as well and, and to have sort of this neutral entity. Um, so it's not the lab, it's not Twitter or any other um, company that, that owns it, but it's owned by the, by the foundation. Um, so that was, um, that was you know, a decision that they made pretty early on. And, uh, and then uh, you know, UC Berkeley donated all the IP to the Apache Foundation um, ben Heintman became the um, the chair for the project, um, and uh, and then it, it sort of went the way that uh, that most Apache projects uh, go. So um, you know, 
every Apache project actually has a lot of freedom over how they want to manage it. Uh, but um, you know, every every Apache project has this has this idea of um, of committers, and um, you know the, the way it works is when when you set up an Apache project um, and it gets accepted, there's an initial set of committers. So at the time it was you know the folks from Berkeley that that have worked on it uh, in the past, and uh, and then the project set up a, a process for you know how do we how do we accept new committers and. The goal there was really uh, because it is such a you know central, such an important piece of the stack. Um, it had the project has a really high bar for people becoming committers. So this you know, it typically takes at least six months for someone to you know write enough code, fix enough bugs, get enough credibility into the community to be accepted as a committer. And um, and so usually what happens is um, there is. A vote that gets done, you know, among among the existing committers. So someone will propose a new person uh, as a new committer, and then uh, the existing committers make a vote. And uh, if there's enough votes, then um, that that goes through, and that person becomes a committer. Hmm. So being an Apache project, I assume it's the Apache license, right? That's right. Yeah, it's Apache two licensed, which is one of the you know more free as far as you are free to build proprietary systems around it. Um, mm-hmm. That being said, you're building a company, a VC-funded company, around Mesos, and um, curious your thoughts on you know building a product or a service around software that ultimately is out of your control. Yeah, so um, this actually works. You know, the model works really great for us, um, and you know we do have some control over the software because we are you know we are an active participant in, in the project. In fact, we have the most committers of, of any company on, on the Apache Mesos project. And so, you know, even though we don't own the IP or we don't own the project, um, we can, uh, we have, you know, a big seat at the table. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, what we really wanted to do is um, build, build substantial product around the open source project as well. Uh, so we really think that you know there's there's a lot we can add in terms of management tools and um, you know applications around Mesos and uh, and sort of you know the the whole um, how do you operationalize this thing and and really make it work in enterprise data centers uh, that's really where where we think we we add a lot of value as a company um, and so you know if a lot of these open source projects you know they're built by you know they're built by hackers and and we kind of built these things for um, for ourselves, um, and um, that that works great. You know, they, they, those things, those tools work. They do the job, but they're not really built for enterprise environments. Uh, and so, in, in Mesos's case, for example, when you set up a cluster and you use open source Mesos, um, out of the box, it's kind of open. You know, anybody can do anything. Um, it does have some controls, but it's uh, not enough for um, to satisfy you know enterprise requirements. Where Folks have, you know, really strict policies and um, auditing requirements. Um, you know, especially when it's a, a bank, they have um, all sorts of regulations that they need to um, make sure they, they meet. So, um, so what we're really doing there is, is building all these tools and APIs around Mesos to to make it work in those environments too. Yeah. So it sounds like because Mesos is kind of the kernel of a distributed clustering system, there's a you know, there's a lot of other pieces to the operating system puzzle, and um, everybody, at least the large players, appear to be building their own. So um, Apple has something, I think, proprietary called Jarvis. Not sure if that's open source proprietary. There's Marathon. You mentioned Kronos that was built at Airbnb. Some of these are open source. 
Some of these are not. Apache Aurora. Can you kind of explain all... You, you mentioned Kronos, and you mentioned that there's other services and things that need to be built around it. Um, is there a comprehensive list of missing things that you need to, to have a data center operating system if all you start with is Apache Mesos? Yeah, so um, you know the best way to do this is uh, is really you know DCOS, the data center operating system, has a, a free community edition that uh, you know you can just go to our website, um, you know, launch a cluster on AWS um, and other clouds, and, and just you know get started with it. It doesn't cost anything besides you know paying for the machines um, in in the cloud. Um, so that's really the best way to get started, and and you know you get all the pieces. Uh, you get the CLI to interact with your cluster. You get the GUI to see what's going on. You get a package manager. So it's really um, you know you, really all the all the things you you know from Linux or other operating systems. There's an equivalent of that in in the DCOS. Um, so our package repository. So you can really easily say install Hadoop, Kafka, Cassandra, all these systems with one single command. The same way, you know, on Linux, you would do apt-get install. Um, you know, we have DCOS package install. Um, and, you know, in terms of the applications that run on top, um, you know, you mentioned a bunch of them. I think, I think the operating system analogy works really well there. Um, so if you think of, um, you know, let's, let's pick macOS. Um, you, when you install macOS, it comes with a few applications pre-installed, right? So you fire it up for the first time. You already have Finder on there and you have a browser, right? Sort of the basics are there, the killer apps are there, right? Uh-huh. Um, but there's many other browsers you can run on macOS, right? You can use Chrome, you can use Firefox, or you can use Opera. Um, and I think it works kind of the same way in the DCOS. You know, when we ship DCOS, it comes with Marathon, uh, which is another open source project that uh, we maintain at Mesosphere, which is kind of the equivalent of an init system uh, that you know from Linux. Um, so it starts, you know, long-lived processes in your data center. So, for example, your Ruby and Rails application or Node.js app. So anything you want to keep running forever, um, it does that. But you know, it, that's just uh, that's just the Safari equivalent, right? That's the one that we ship, um, and we believe it's awesome. But if you if you want to use a different one, you can do that. And uh, you know, like you said, Apple built their own. It's Jarvis. Um, HubSpot built one called Singularity. Twitter built one called Aurora. Um, Netflix is working on one. So it's, you know, I think this really shows that the, the data center operating system model works, right? Because you get this foundation and it allows developers out there at all these companies to build their own applications on top, to use the API and build something that's custom for their environment, that works well for their needs, that works well with their workflow. And in fact, I, I'd argue, you know, if um, th- those things are kind of like platform as a service equivalents, passes, and uh, we've seen a lot of passes in the, in, in the past. Um, and I would argue that none of them have really been that successful. And I think it's because they're generally pretty opinionated. They have one specific workflow, and that you know usually just works for a handful of people. It uh, that same workflow does not work for every company. And so one thing uh, that the DCS allows you to do is really you know either take one of those existing things and modify them or just build your own completely if you want to have your own workflow. Um, and in fact, there's, uh, I think there's more than a dozen in total that are you know, PaaS-like systems that run on top of the DCOS. Um, another example is actually Docker Swarm, which, uh, which they're also building on top of Mesos. Huh. So as developers, we always try to 
point out patterns and what's the same and what's different. And it seems like uh, the Mesos makes a lot of sense to have that that cluster management and scheduler shared. And But everybody seems to be agreeing that the platform, the Marathon, the Jarvis, this is where the concerns break out. And you can't actually share. That's not shared infrastructure, huh? Could it be? Could those all be shared? Like there's one pass and we all, you know, just like Apache Mesos, uh, I noticed Aurora, which you said was Twitter started, is an Apache project. Well, how come How come it's not everybody's working on Apache Aurora and then you guys are adding value at an even higher level? It's just because there's different needs at a low level? Right, yeah, it's it's for that reason uh, that I mentioned. I think um, they huh. all, all of these things take slightly different approaches. And, um, you know, Aurora and Jarvis and Singularity, they're all... They all have something that is, you know, fills a specific need um, inside the company that built it, and and that makes it less, you know, generalizable. Huh. And so, um, you know, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's I think it's actually awesome that there's that there's choice, and um, and you know that if you're new to the space, you can you can look at the patterns that each one of those systems um, use and and just pick the one that that works best for you. Kubernetes is another another example which you know came out of Google and, and has sort of their workflow and their abstractions built in you can run that on the dcs as well yeah i was just going to ask about google because they seem to be the the missing entity in the large uh, uh players here uh, amazon as well or maybe we mentioned them a little bit but google has a thing called borg could you explain how borg fits into this or doesn't fit into this it absolutely fits in yeah so um, actually borg was probably the first system ever um in in this space um and um you know, Google uses it internally. It's not open source. Um, they don't sell it. Um, they wrote a paper about it. And uh, in fact, um, Mesos takes some inspiration from Borg. Um, you know, Google is a sponsor of the lab where it came from. So there was, you know, a good exchange of ideas back then. Uh, it also does uh, a few things differently than Borg, but um, definitely, you know, took a lot of inspiration. Um, so, yeah, Borg is the cluster manager um, and that, that Google uses internally for for pretty much everything so if you're using gmail that runs on borg if you're using google search it runs on borg they run all the databases i think even google file system runs on top of borg so uh, it's really their one stack that they use internally to um to run all the things awesome well i want to ask a few more questions about kubernetes and uh clear up exactly how that fits into everything because it seems like it does play nice uh in this uh, ecosystem but We'll take a quick break, hear from a sponsor, and when we get back, we will ask Toby about Kubernetes. You've heard me talk about TopTal several times in this podcast, but today is different. I've got a special treat for you. I went out and spoke with a listener who a year ago had never heard of TopTal. He listened to the show just like you're doing right here, right now today, and heard us talk about TopTal and what they're all about, and he decided to get in touch. And now he's living the dream as a freelance software developer with TopTal. His name is Daniel Elzon, and I sat down and I talked with him. I said, hey, what is it that you love most about TopTal? Take a listen. Well, for me, the, the thing about TopTal, which I thought would be very hard for me personally as I transitioned to a more consulting role, uh, was the, the way I would have access to new clients and what quality of those would be. So I found that I've had access to awesome clients through TopTal and it hasn't been that hard to find because they have a lot of choice and even more than that uh, there's enough choice and I, I can actually be a little selective about 
what kinds of things I want to be working on. So I use that as a way to sort of hone my skills and you know, go towards the technologies that I think are, are worth investing in for the future. So whether it's you know, including new front-end frameworks or doing a little DevOps work on the side, I, I, I usually am able to find clients who are, uh, have the needs of the things I want to get better at. So that's been, that's been uh, truly useful. All right, that was Daniel Lazan, a listener of the Changelog and also a freelance software developer with TopTal. If you want to follow in Daniel's footsteps, go to toptal.com slash developers. That's T-O-P-T-A-L dot com slash developers to learn more about what TopTal is all about and tell them the Changelog sent you. All right, we're back talking about Apache Mesos, Mesosphere, uh, the cloud, digital, or digital, distributed systems. Um, curious about Kubernetes. You mentioned it uh, previous to the break, but I'd kind of like you to just explain it in more detail for us. Yeah, so Kubernetes is an open source project that uh, Google uh, kicked off last year, uh, 2014. Um, they announced it, uh, I think, in around June last year after working on it for a couple of months. Um, so it's really, it's... Um, it's a container manager, container orchestrator um, that is um, that uses a lot of the same abstractions and learnings uh, from Google internally. That, you know the things that Google learned over the years building Borg and uh, you know its multiple iterations. Um, and so they took all those learnings um, and you know put it into a new open source project uh, that they built from scratch. Um, and that is what Kubernetes is. So uh, it's you know. It's a really nice tool. It's really um, uh, simple and easy to use. Um, they have um, it has kind of two main abstractions that you know Google um, found very useful for managing large numbers of containers. One of them is uh, the idea of a pod, which is basically a group of containers that get launched together on the same physical machine that um, you know share the same network address and share the same um, volumes. Um, and so a use case would be, for example, if you're running a web application in one container and uh, you want to run some monitoring system right next to it or some logging system, logging agent um, right next to that web application, you can run that in another container, but they get launched together so um, and they share the volume, share the disk, so, so they have access to each other. Um, so that's the idea of a pod. It's one of the you know things that are uh, unique about Kubernetes. Uh, the other one is this idea of... Um, labels and using labels to model dependencies in the system and discover other pieces in the system. Um, so, you know, when you're running lots and lots of containers at scale, um, one problem is, is really how do you discover things? You know, how do you figure out where things are running and how do you say, um, you know, this web application depends on that database? And traditionally how we did that um, on, you know, in, in the past is with DNS, right? We would just say, mm-hmm. you know, my Rails application, you know, go talk to database.company.com. And, you know, that, that doesn't really work in very dynamic and elastic environments where containers can move around and, um, and you don't really have this model of, you know, pinning an application to a specific machine and, and you know, making sure it lives there forever. So, so yeah, what Kubernetes does instead is it, it gives you labels. Um, so you can basically just say, um, you know, my web app depends on the thing that is labeled, um, you know, type database and environment production, something like that. Um, so those are kind of the two main abstractions in Kubernetes, pods and labels. Um, and, uh, you know, we like those um, a lot. And 
Kubernetes, you know, is a really popular open source project. It's getting a lot of traction. Um, it's really great for running containers um, in, you know, sort of um, a microservices environment. And um, so that's why we decided to become part of the project too. And um, and I think, you know, the where we can really add value there is um, we can make it run really well um, in, you know, any environment where the DCOS runs. Um, so you don't have, you know, the same way you don't have to go through the setup of uh, the other distributed systems that we support. Um, we make that really easy for Kubernetes as well. So you can literally say, you know, DCOS package install Kubernetes and you're up and running. You have a Kubernetes cluster configured and you can start running containers. Hmm. So because it's operating at the, the level of orchestrating Linux containers, it can actually sit on top of Mesos and on top of the DCOS that Mesosphere adds to Mesos. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So it, it sits sort of at the same level where all of our other services sit. Um, so right next to, you know, Spark, Hadoop, Marathon, mm -hmm. all these other things. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to try to lay out my understanding of this whole stack. And I just want you to tell me where, where it falls down or if I'm, if I'm tracking you. Because I feel like mm -hmm. I am, but then I turn around and I can't. And I realize I have no idea what, what's going on. So <laughs> you have, and maybe Adam, this will help you as well. It'll definitely help me. Okay. So you have your hardware, right? Yep. And then on that, you have an operating system like Linux. That's right. Um, and then on top of that, you have Mesos, which turns many Linuxes, you know, thousands are scalable up and down into one clustered mm -hmm. thing. And then on top of that, now you add on top of your... Your it's not really application layer, but now you can start adding your, this is where your Kubernetes We call it services. In, your yeah. services. So right. maybe you have a Hadoop service. Um, exactly. Or you have Kubernetes, which allows you then to manage Linux containers. So now you have a second layer of Linux, um, but abstracted away from the hardware now. Um, yeah. Which then inside of those containers, you could run your Hadoop, right? Exactly. So, so I think you described it uh, really well. So you have the hardware. You the next layer up. Um, well, Linux is there. Um, right. The next layer up is um, Mesos. That's the layer that abstracts. Um, not really abstracts, but manages the resources. Manages uh -huh. the hardware resources. So it knows how big your cluster is. It knows how many cores are available. How much memory is available. And it, it uses those resources from that one big pool, which is your whole data center or your whole cloud. Uh -huh. and, and offers them to the services that run on top. So the services on top are kind of your building blocks. They're kind of your Legos that you use to build your business application, uh -huh. right? So if you're building a web app, you need a database. So, you know, launch a database on the DCOS. If you're, if you're building a web app, you need a way to run containers. So use, you know, one of the container um, orchestration, orchestrator services like Kubernetes, like Marathon, like Docker Swarm, and so on. Um, so those are the building blocks, and then you use those building blocks to manage your application. So your application code um, goes into a Linux container. You give that Linux container to one of those orchestrators. They run it in the cluster. You get the tools, um, you know, the service discovery, for example, to let your application talk to the database that you launched earlier. That's how it all fits together. Gotcha. I think I follow that. Adam, yeah. is that Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely you? tracking on that, Meg. It's a lot. It's definitely still complicated, but I'm yeah. tracking for sure. It's a yeah. whole new world. Everything's different. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I think when one of Kubernetes' pitch was like Google's infrastructure for everybody. Um, right. And, you know, a data center operating system is kind of the same idea. It's like you could have access to this kind of scale without having to manage all those 
you know, tricky pieces below where you care about. And, um, you know, we've been talking about big players, Apple, Google, Twitter, Airbnb. Um, and so the question that pops up because I'm just a little guy, you know, (laughs) uh, and as a lot of developers are out there, a lot of our listeners are developers wondering like, is this something I even need to be caring about as somebody who maybe runs a couple servers that maybe I have a web server and a database server? Um, should we be paying attention to this stuff or is it really the world of Twitters and Airbnbs? I think everybody should be paying attention to this. Um, and, and here's the reason. So I think when we build things today, um, we sort of have to, we always have to choose between, you know, building things quickly or building things for scale. I've definitely been in that situation. If you look at, you know, Airbnb and Twitter in the early days, um, they were just, you know, a simple Ruby and Rails application that talked to a database, right? That's, that's how they both started. Um, and, uh, and they sort of had to choose to, you know, build, build things quickly for build for a time to market. Um, and then when they, when they started growing, um, you know, it became really hard to scale those things. So I think, you know, for all the developers out there that are working on something that, you know, they hope that one day will, will be big. Um, I would say build it on top of the DCOS from, from day one, because, um, you know, when when it when it comes time to scale that thing, um, you'll have a lot less things to worry about. And you know, I think uh, even if you just have two servers and um, the DCS can already add value, you know, if one of those two servers fails, um, it can move your applications to the other one. So I think that's already pretty awesome. Uh-huh. Um, I think you know the reason why we're seeing mostly big companies using this stuff right now is because you know for them there's no alternative. Like their pain in managing those many many servers that they have. Is so big, and there's, there's just no alternative to automating the whole thing. Um, and so, you know, their um, their bleeding is bigger. That's why we're seeing a, a lot more of those guys using it. But um, you know, if I were to start a company today, um, and you know, build some, uh, say, build a mobile app with uh, with a backend, um, I would definitely build it on the DCOS from day one. You don't think things are moving too quickly for those who don't touch it quite quite as often as say daily, like. A large ops team might. It's not moving so quickly that they'll just spend most of their time kind of playing catch up to this new tech. Uh, no, I don't think so. And and you know, really, that's our our mission at Mesosphere is to really make this um, kind of an easy to use product. Um, so you don't have to be a you know cluster management expert or distributed systems PhD to to run that thing. We want to make that really really easy. You know, as easy as as Linux. You know, in Get to, get to that same level of um, uh, of sort of turnkey experience. Maybe we should uh, take some time now to break down Mesosphere then. So now that we've talked about Mesos, Marathon, Kronos, and the whole slew of things, Kubernetes, Borg even. Um, let's talk about what this does to, to bring it to a, a DCOS. So DCOS is, Mesosphere is the company. DCOS or Mesosphere DCOS is a product. Where is is this a shipping? Is it uh, I guess do you download it? Do you is it a cloud service? How does this work? Right. So it um, there's basically you know two ways to run it, um, which is on one of the public clouds like AWS and uh, Google Cloud and Azure, um, or you can run it on your own machines if you have you know a bunch of machines in a data center somewhere, or you uh, or you own a whole data center. Um, you can go to the Mesosphere website today, um, 
basically click a button and launch a fully configured cluster in, in one of the clouds. So all the, you know, it just uses the standard provisioning tools that the cloud providers have, like CloudFormation on AWS. And, you know, brings up all the machines, it's fully configured, you know, it takes about 10 minutes and, and you're up and running. And um, so it's not, you know, hosted by Mesosphere, but, um, you know, you kind of, um, we just give you a template, we redirect you to AWS, you log in with your own account and, um, you know, you use that template to bring everything up, but, you know, it's your machines and your AWS account. So you manage the whole thing. Um, if you want to run it in, uh, in a data center, in your own data center, on your own machines, um, we have sort of an early access version of that product. Um, and um, we're giving that to um, you know, a handful of, of design partners right now and, and, and early customers um, that are helping us you know, sort of polish it up. Um, so it's kind of, you know, call us and, uh, and we'll get back to you and help you install it at the moment. So when we go to the product page, we see Community Edition free and we see Enterprise Edition. Let's talk. Right. Is that the dividing line there? The Community Edition is what you can go and launch today and the Enterprise version is what you can take to your own data center. Exactly. Yep. Okay. So I guess since there's so much underlying tech under this and we all know what open source is, the the most easy way to ask is, is uh, why isn't Community Edition free? Or I guess it is free, but why isn't it open source is there a reason why you went the way you went with it, or do you do you plan on a, having that as a paid version at some point? So we're um, you know we're evaluating our options there right now. Um, you know we love open source. We're a big contributor to Mesos. In fact, uh, and to Marathon and Kronos and other open source projects. Um, uh, so you know today the majority of code that we write is open source, and right. um, we've definitely had to you know we're having the conversation right now about DCS. You know what should we do there? Should we make it entirely open source? Should we op- and parts of it are already open source. Um, so, um, so yeah, the, we'll we'll make um, we'll probably have some news there um, sometime soon. Which which parts are open source right now? Um, so so kind of the parts that I mentioned. So Mesos, Marathon, and Kronos, and all the other uh, frameworks that we're running, like Cassandra. Um, you know, the integration between Cassandra and DCS, for example, Kafka and DCS, all that stuff is open source. So the so earlier when we talked about terms and try to divide the lines a bit, so Apache Mesos is different from Mesos. No, that's the same thing. Same Apache, thing? Okay. Apache Mesos, Mesos, same thing. Trying to make sure because I see it's a yeah. fork, and I wasn't sure if it was. Is it your own flavor of the fork, or is it uh, the the real thing itself? Yeah, so we work we work with Apache Mesos. That's what gotcha. we contribute to, and uh, and that's what that's the the version that goes into DCOS also. So what's uh, so? Do you have any thoughts on the future of this then, in, in terms of how it plays back in open source? I know you got components in there, but is it something where, you know, for example, the one that comes to mind right now is just because the naming is so similar too is GitLab, right? GitLab right. has an enterprise version and it has a community version, and community is the open source free version, and then enterprise is something you can buy and install, or they even have hosted similar to GitHub. Right. Yeah. You know, for us, we. We really think that um, this is, you know, this makes operating infrastructure so much easier, and we really want to give it to everybody. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to hold those things back, um, and so that's why we have, we already have a free community edition that, you know, there's no charge for it. Um, the, you know, and and we're, you know, we're thinking hard about open sourcing it as well. Um, you know, has some implications, of course, but. Um, right. 
you know, we're, we're thinking through that process right now. Yeah. Just curious. Cause, uh, it seems like that would be the place to start if you were going to. And I figured that was the question on every listener's mind is, Hey, why isn't community free then? Or why isn't it open source? If it's, if it's free, why not make it open source too? Right. Do you guys feel any pressure from, because you are VC funded uh, investors uh, on the open source front? Like, do they push you away from it? Do they push you toward it? Is it a complete non-factor? Um, so our, our investors are, are really awesome. You know, it's, um, Someone told me at some point, it's like, um, well, besides, besides looking for money, you know, really look for a business partner. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, our two biggest investors are, are Coastal Adventures and uh, Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, and they've been really great uh, to work with. And, you know, they really want to see this. They want to see this uh, be successful in the, in the long run. And, um, and they give us a lot of freedom to run the company. So um, it's... You know, it's really to, in, in a large part, it's it's our decision. You know, how much we want to do open source and and how much we want to do closed. Um, you know, not really getting getting pressure from from the VCs on that. And they see the value of the open source too. And you know, they've invested in other uh, open source companies before. Um, so you know, they understand the model. They see the benefits. Cool. Switching gears a little bit here. I'm thinking about languages and um, Apache Mesos itself, a C plus plus project. It seems like a lot of the projects built on top of it, such as Marathon, are Scala. Or is it Scala? I call it Scala. Scala, yeah. Thank you. Scala, if I'm right. Or at least according to a couple of us, I'm right. Uh, Toby. According to Toby. Which you are the... (laughs) Yeah, we'll let you have the final say. So Scala, um, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of right tool for the right job and learning why tools are the right for particular jobs. And it seems like Scala is well-fitted for this space. I'm wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, so actually, we have um, we, we're working in a lot of different languages in that in that layer, in sort of the the DCOS services layer. Um, so yeah, Kronos and Marathon are in Scala. Um, there's a bunch that are in, in Java, just you know because the project started that way. For example, Cassandra and Hadoop and HDFS, and they're all uh, they're all Java. And then there's Go, also um, Kubernetes is, mm-hmm. is written in Go. Um, we're really language agnostic there. So you can, uh, Mesos has an API for a lot of languages. Um, Python, in addition to those that we just mentioned, I think someone wrote Haskell bindings too. So it's, uh, you know, you can really use pretty much anything and it's it's pretty easy to write your own language bindings. Um, Mesos is right now getting a new HTTP based API, which will which will ship fairly soon. So it'll be you know, even easier to build language bindings. Um, we picked Scala originally, um, trying to think uh, why, why we picked that um, you know at the time um, so this was three years ago I think at this point uh, when we started building Kronos um, you know Java was still very you know, it was a very popular language for systems engineering and um, Scala is also a JVM language and we found it to be you know more expressive than Java um, you know you had to write fewer lines of code um, it allowed us to do functional programming, which was really interesting. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's, that's why we went with it. It just seemed, you know, more modern, more, more effective and more efficient than uh, in terms of, you know, uh, the time it takes to write software. Um, and uh, so that's where we, why we went with it at the time. Um, but, you know, I, I completely agree with you. I think it's all about, you know, finding the right tool for the job. And um, I think there's right now, you know, 
new exciting languages in systems engineering. Go is definitely getting a lot of, um, you know, picking about a lot, a lot of steam. Scala is getting more popular too. There's a few new ones like Rust. Um, so we're really, you know, we're really language agnostic there. So if you want to develop for the DCS, um, you're not tied to a specific language. Yeah, but with a few years of experience looking back now on that decision, uh, do you feel like it was a good decision? Are you are you still bullish on Scala? Are you uh, you personally even because I, I know you've been writing some as well. Uh, just curious your thoughts on it, and then if you are personally looking at Go or looking at these other things, Rust, or if that's more as a company. Right. So so personally, I think um, you know it looks like. Um, the Go community is really, you know, growing, and, and a lot of the sort of newer tools that we're seeing in, in the systems engineering space are written in Go. So, um, you know, today I would probably um, build the thing in Go. Um, you know, for that for that reason, um, I personally still like Scala a lot, um, and I prefer it over over Go. Actually, it's um, you know it it has Go is a very simple language, uh, which is great. You know, it's, it has a low barrier of entry. Um, it's, um, you know, the code that you write is very consistent because there's usually only, you know, only one way to do things or a few ways to do things. Um, so those are huge you know, benefits. Um, Scala, you know, is, lets you do functional programming really well. Um, and so, you know, they both have their strengths and, and weaknesses. Um, for, for a type of, for a project like, um, you know, a systems uh, systems engineering project, a cluster manager. I would, I would probably go with uh, with Go today. I'd probably use, still use Scala for, um, say, if I was doing something in data analytics, you know, Spark based. That's using Scala, or um, you know, web backends and things like that. I would probably still go with Scala. So all the uh, all the folks who we've gotten recently as listeners to the show, Jared, are are pretty excited because we just came back from GopherCon, and most of those guys are either writing Go or interested in writing Go. So they're, they're hands in the air, except for when you said Scala. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Well, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll come back and ask you some really awesome closing questions. But uh, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. I have yet to meet a single person who doesn't love DigitalOcean. If you've tried DigitalOcean, you know how awesome it is. And here at the Changelog, everything we have runs on blazing fast, SSD cloud servers from DigitalOcean. And I want you to use the code CHANGELOG when you sign up today to get a free month, run a server with one gig of RAM and 30 gigs of SSD drive space totally for free on DigitalOcean. Use the code CHANGELOG. Again, that code is CHANGELOG. Use that when you sign up for a new account. Head to digitalocean.com to sign up and tell them the CHANGELOG sent you. All right, we're back. Uh, great break there. And we got some awesome closing questions that many, many listeners are always just like, I, I love when they ask those questions. And the and the first question, I think, is is maybe a call to arms, Toby. So of the projects you have out there, from the CLI to, um, to Marathon to all the different projects you mentioned, uh, what are some call to arms, some ways that the open source community can help rally around what you're working on or what you're doing to amplify what you're doing or to just step in and help out right yeah so you know i think the goal of, of things like marathon and, and and or you know the whole dcs uh, is really to automate everything um so you know it's it's making uh making ops people's lives better sres um so if you're working in that field and uh you know you hate 
doing the same thing over and over again and um, you hate you know getting woken up in the middle of the night um, because some random machine in your data center failed or in your cloud um, you know you may want to check out marathon and the DCS and um, you know see if it works for your use case um, and you know try it out and you know help us help us fix some bugs in there and, and help us make it work for even more use cases and the the GitHub org that you guys operate off of is just slash Mesosphere, right? That's right. Yeah, GitHub slash Mesosphere. Tons of stuff on there. You know, from little weekend projects that some of our guys are working on. Um, there's some really cool stuff there, actually. So, uh, you know, I don't know if you guys have any uh, HPC high performance computing listeners, but um, we have a couple of guys on the team that are playing with stuff there, like MPI. Um, so, so yeah, some some really cool things there. Also, you know, if you want to uh, get started um, developing for the DCS or the building a distributed system, if you've never done that, um, there's a really cool example project on our GitHub called Rendler. Uh, it's a rendering web crawler. So, you, you know, it crawls the web, renders all the pages, shows them in a big graph. Um, and it's basically example code for developing a distributed system on, on top of the DCS. Very cool. Um, it's in a lot of different languages. I think we have Scala, Java, Python, you know, a bunch of others. So it's a really good place to get started. It's called Wrangler. Is that right? Uh, Rendler. Rend- Rendler. Okay, yeah. I just found it. Yeah, it's a couple pages back in the... We'll link to some of the show notes, but it's, it's uh, R-E-N-D-L-E-R, Rendler. Right. And, and it seems like it's, uh, you know, based on the... <laughs> the guy here on the readme, it looks like Joker. Is it the Joker? It, it's the... Um, what is that? Do you know? What, what's the guy? I think it's Riddler. Again? Riddler. That's okay. Right. Yeah. yeah, Riddler. <laughs> I know there was something like that. It looked like Joker for a second, but it was Riddler. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're not kidding when you say you have a lot of open source stuff out there because six pages on there uh, slash Mesosphere. And I think it's There's about, a lot. I think it's yeah. 20 yep. per page. Some of those are forks, obviously. Um, but still, lots of lots of cool repos out there for those who want to go digging. Yep. Next question, one we cannot skip, everyone's favorite, is who is your programming hero? My programming hero, I think, is, is Mark Andreessen. Because, um, you know, the guy did so much. He wrote um, really the first usable web browser um, back in the day. And, um, you know, he did, he did so much for um, making the Internet uh, what it is, you know, went on to start Netscape, which, um, you know, at the time they came up with JavaScript, um, the Netscape browser, of course, um, the Netscape application server, which, you know, back then was basically the way to build web applications, you know, the equivalent of Node.js and, and Ruby on Rails and, and all of those tools that we have today. Um, so, yeah, he's my hero. Very cool. And uh, a question we don't ask every single show, but I love asking this question, which is what's on your open source radar? So if you've got a weekend or even a week where you could just like take a vacation that's not really like traditional vacation where you just go and travel and have fun, you actually like maybe, you know, go travel, have fun and hack too. It's a hackation or something like that. I don't know. But uh, if you had some time where you weren't forced to work on what you work on daily, uh, either by your own passions or your own commitments, if you just could take a weekend or a week, what would you play with? What would you work on? Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, obviously our open source projects, there's there's a ton of them. It's, um, <laughs> I would definitely work on those. But you know, things things that we aren't working on as a company, um, I can think of two. Um, there's a really cool um, deep learning framework, um, also uh, managed by UC Berkeley. It's called Cafe. 
Um, so lets you do you know deep learning, neural networks. Um, that's kind of a you know machine learning is kind of a passion of mine. Um, so I'd probably check that out. Um, Cafe. And the other one I take a look at uh, it's it's a monitoring tool uh, built by SoundCloud. It's called Prometheus. Um, that looks really cool too. Oh wow, Adam! That's probably check those out. That's a good tee up because that's our next episode, isn't it? Next episode? It's definitely in the close pipeline. I can't remember if it's next or second to next, but yeah, we're having the Prometheus team on. Uh, I think it is next week, actually. Yeah, it is. It's after this show. Right on. Like we Julius Volts and uh, is it just Julius coming on the show or who else is coming on the Probably show? Probably just Julius, one? but possibly Bjorn as well. Bjorn would be awesome. Those guys were so awesome. Cool. Yeah, we hired. Um, we have we have a few SoundCloud people here, and they're all they're all raving about it. Yeah. Well, we'll be talking to Prometheus soon, so maybe you can tune into that episode. So, so you got uh, Cafe, which is a deep learning. Uh, don't know what you describe that as deep learning framework. Yeah, or a toolkit for for deep learning. So why Prometheus? So I think um, you know I'm I did a lot of ops in my career, a lot of you know a lot of SRE, and so monitoring tools is always um, is always a hot topic. Um, there's just so many shitty tools out there. Um, so you know Prometheus really looks like like something fresh, something something different. Um, I haven't really, you know, taken it, uh, tried it out yet. So um, that would be that would be my first thing to do is just get it up and running and fire some data at it and, and, and see what it does. Just play with it. Very cool. Well, uh, Toby, it was, it was really awesome having you on the show. For those who don't know how to reach out to you, what's the best ways to get in touch? Twitter, GitHub. Twitter works. Um, my Twitter handle is, uh, is, is Super Gunter. So that's how you can find me. We'll link to that one. <laughs> Super good. <Super> <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, cool, man. So any, any other closing thoughts before we close out the show for yourself? This was fun. This is fun. All right. That's a good closing thought. All right. Cool. <laughs> well, I want to say a huge thanks to everyone who listens to this show and specifically uh, those members out there that, that support the show. We're member supported. We're also sponsored. So the sponsors we have for the show our code ship, top towel, and digital ocean for this show. Uh, we love those guys that make this show possible. Jared, you're awesome, and Toby, you're awesome for joining us as well today. Uh, until next week when we talk about Prometheus, let's say goodbye, guys. See ya. See ya. Goodbye. <laughs>